We continue in our series through 1 John, and we come this Lord's Day to our text, 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. What should we do when a brother or sister in Jesus Christ sins against us? Perhaps we may be tempted to show a vengeful anger or a belittling ridicule or an apathetic indifference toward that brother or sister. Perhaps we may be tempted to involve others by rallying them to our support. However, if we are to exercise a pure love for the brethren, if we are to be faithful to the Lord who has called us with a holy calling, then we must resist all the temptations that have been mentioned above and fall on our knees before the God of grace and mercy and humbly beseech the Lord to grant to this erring brother or sister genuine repentance and forgiveness. Dear ones, our hearts can either become hardened or softened before God at the sins of brethren. We can either become cold or fervent in our zeal for the Lord at the sin of others. We can either rejoice or we can weep at the sins of brethren. We can either withdraw our love or rather pour out our love toward brethren who fall into some sin. We can either seek to expose their sin by involving others when it is unnecessary or we can seek to cover their sin for as long as the circumstance may permit. What we do in such cases not only says something about the fallen brother, but also says a great deal about ourselves and our own love for the brethren. Certainly, we are all prone to such sins. None of us are exempt from such sins. But God grant us mercy to plead not only for our fallen brother, but also to plead for God's forgiveness in loving so little those whom Christ loves so much. As the Apostle John draws to a close in this his inspired instruction to Christians who are being tempted to follow the false teaching of the Gnostics. He emphasizes the confidence Christians may have before God in knowing that they have eternal life and in knowing that God hears and answers their prayers. But such a joyful assurance, dear ones, that we belong to the Lord and that no power on earth or in hell can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
ought not to drive us to a preoccupation with ourselves in prayer. But rather it ought to compel us to demonstrate that Christian charity toward our brethren in prayer. Yea, even toward brethren who have sinned against us. Listen to the words of our larger catechism. Question 183. For whom are we to pray? The answer. We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth, for magistrates and ministers, for ourselves, our brethren, yea, our enemies, and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those that are known to have sinned the sin unto death. We are to pray for the church of Christ according to our larger catechism that God would restore, build up, strengthen His church upon the earth. We are to pray for magistrates and if we cannot pray for them, because and pray a blessing upon them because they are not lawful magistrates, we pray that God will humble them, that God will cause them to see the disorder, the unrighteousness which they are bringing. We're to pray for ministers that God would cause the ministers of Christ to stand faithfully for the truth. We're to pray for ourselves. We're to pray for our brethren. The question or the answer to the catechism question says to pray for our brethren and even for our enemies. As we consider our text this Lord's Day, dear ones, we shall be answering the following questions. I have three questions from the text that we'll seek to answer. First of all, who is the brother that is in view here in our text and what is to be done for him? The second question, what is a sin which is not unto death? And finally, what is a sin unto death? Not an easy passage of the Scripture to expound upon, but nevertheless, by God's grace, God helping us to be faithful, we will press on this Lord's Day. And so the first question Who is the brother and what is to be done for him when he sins? Well, the text says, If any man see his brother sin, he shall ask. And he shall give him life. He shall ask. And he shall give him life. The use of the word brother actually occurs ten, in ten separate verses throughout 1 John. And love for the brethren, as we have noted time and time again, is one of the three tests that the Apostle John frequently holds before us as a mark of one who truly can be assured that he is a child of God. Love for the brethren. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 
A brother is one who professes the true religion of Jesus Christ, at least the fundamentals of that faith, in both word and deed. He may be a member of our church or he may not be a member of our church. He may adhere to our terms of communion or he may not adhere to our terms of communion. Nevertheless, he professes to be united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by faith alone. Gillespie makes clear in his miscellany questions that our love for the brethren or saints, as he calls them, is not limited to the brethren in our congregation alone when he states the following. Lovest thou all the saints in general, praying for them all? Lovest thou all the saints in particular whom thou knowest? That is, thou darest not confine or limit this love to those saints only who are altogether of thy opinion or who have some intimacy of friendship with thee, nay, nor to those who never wronged thee, never strove with thee, who never spake evil of thee, but all whom thou hast reason to judge to be saints, thou lovest them, wishest well to them, art ready to do them good according to thy power. And if thou be at variance or difference with any of them, thou prayest God to make them and thyself of one heart and of one mind. And it is an affliction of spirit to thee to be at variance with any that are Christ's. For you see, dear ones, the erring brother in this passage, may be disorderly in his doctrine, in his worship, or in his practice, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He may sin against the truth, as did Peter when Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles in Antioch. And thereby that action was in effect saying that one must become a Jew before he can become a Christian. This brother may speak against you, but an erring brother is not an enemy to be hated, despised, and cursed in prayer. Even when a brother is excommunicated from the visible church for his obstinacy in some sin or some error, he is treated by the church as a heathen and publican until he repents. But he is not cursed and sentenced to hell as a reprobate. He is humbly brought before the throne of grace in prayer and his repentance is earnestly and sincerely sought from the Lord. For the Lord says in this passage that that he shall ask when we see a brother and we pray for the brother, we shall ask and he that is God will give him life. The erring brother will grant him life. That is, the Lord will grant him a genuine repentance that leads to life. As Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 7.10 concerning true repentance. For godly sorrow, Paul says, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh, worketh death. 
And so God hears the prayer that we pray for our erring brother or sister. And God works repentance. And God restores through that means. Dear ones, even the righteous judgment that the psalmist prays will fall upon the wicked enemies of God has in view their turning to God in repentance. Remember in Psalm 83.16, one of those imprecatory psalms, the psalmist says, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Martin Luther correctly states the attitude of the Christian, even in praying concerning those who are avowed enemies of the gospel. He says, We should pray that our enemies be converted and become our friends, and if not, that their doing and designing be bound to fail and have no success, and that their person perish rather than the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. Beloved, if this is to be our attitude toward the enemies of God, that we should even pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us as taught by our Lord, what should be our love for our brethren in Jesus Christ as manifested in our prayers for an erring brother when he falls into some sin or error? What should be our attitude in prayer for him or for her? You see, we not only demonstrate our love for the brethren in the way we speak and act toward them, but also in the way we pray for them or in the way we don't pray for them, as the case may be. In fact, it is in our private prayer closet that our true heart attitude is revealed toward our brethren. If we genuinely love an erring brother in that private place before God, if we weep before the Lord on account of the sin He has committed, and especially when it is committed against ourselves, We will not only love them in that private place of prayer, but we will love them when we leave our prayer closet and close the door behind us. We will, by God's grace, be able, if this is what we're doing in our private prayer closet, we will be able to take that root of bitterness out of our heart. We will be able, by God's grace, to prevent any evil speaking of our brother or our sister, that may be communicated to others. I submit to you, dear brethren, today, that we can generally judge the quality of our love for the brethren by how much time we spend in prayer, pouring forth our hearts before the Lord on behalf of even an erring brother. Perhaps you have observed, as I have, how our love for the brethren is almost picture perfect. In fact, we can sing the praises of love for the brethren long and loud 
as long as we are on good terms with one another. However, brotherly love is sorely tested when differences in judgment and especially when error or sin separate brethren. And although the enemy would, through such temptations, seek to divide and separate brethren, nevertheless, the Lord sends such trials into our lives to test the quality of our love for the brethren. Will we immediately go on the attack when differences, sin or error enter the picture? Or will we be immediately driven to our knees to intercede earnestly, humbly, and lovingly for that brother or sister? Although there is a need, dear ones, to take immediate action in certain circumstances because of the public nature of the sin committed by a brother or a sister, as when Paul again publicly rebuked Peter before all, the church of Antioch, And although there is a need to confront a brother in love at some point due to a certain sin he has committed, as stated in Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Nevertheless, Our first and our primary recourse, if we would exercise a pure love for the brethren, is ordinarily not to speak about him in the hearing of others, but rather to speak of him in the hearing of our Heavenly Father. The Apostle John, in the text before us, calls us to exercise a pure love for the brethren by taking that erring brother or sister into our heart and unto the Lord in prayer, even as the high priest in the Old Testament carried over his heart an ephod with twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel when he prayed unto the Lord. My second main point this Lord's Day is to answer the question, what is a sin which is not unto death? Our text says, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Here the Apostle John distinguishes between a sin that is not unto death and a sin that is unto death. This distinction between a sin not unto death and a sin unto death, however, does not support the Romish view of a distinction made between venial and mortal sins. In a book entitled The New Catechism of the Catholic Faith, which has the imprimatur of the Romish Church, the following questions are asked concerning mortal sins and venial sins. I simply read this for your instruction so that you understand 
what the Romish church teaches, the error it promotes by so doing, the heresy it promotes, so that we have an accurate understanding, therefore, of what the truth is. Listen to these questions and these answers. How many kinds of sins are there? There are two kinds of sins, mortal sins and venial sins. What is a mortal sin? A mortal sin is a serious violation of the law of God. To be guilty of mortal sin, the action, word, desire, thought, or neglect must be seriously wrong. You must know it is seriously wrong. You must deliberately and freely choose to do it. What happens to your soul if you commit mortal sin? You lose all of the grace you have ever obtained. What happens if you die in the state of mortal sin? You will go to hell. Are all sins against the commandments mortal sins? No, some sins are small or venial sins. To tell a lie is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. A lie that is not serious is a venial sin. A serious lie is a mortal sin. What is a venial sin? A venial sin is a violation of the law of God that is not so serious. Examples of venial sins, small acts of uncharitableness, impatience, telling a small lie, stealing a small amount of money, being slightly late for Mass on Sunday, small family arguments and disagreements. And last question, does venial sin deprive the soul of grace? Venial sin does not deprive the soul of grace. Venial sin gradually weakens the will and thus, little by little, prepares the way for your soul to fall into mortal sin. Then when such a view cannot help but lead on the one hand to antinomianism and lawlessness, to licentiousness in the Christian life, where we justify a sin as not being that serious and nothing really to worry about. Or it can also lead, on the other hand, to Arminianism in the Christian life, where we believe that one who is justified by faith in Christ can fall from that perfect justification and be lost forever. Which leads us to the place that we cannot know for sure that we have eternal life, contrary to what John says in chapter 5, verse 13. These are the the directions that this distinction between mortal and venial sin leads in the Christian life. However, contrary to the view of Rome that we have just enumerated, in regard to sin, 
The biblical position promoted by our Reformed and Presbyterian forefathers is summarized for us in the larger catechism. Question 24. Ask the question, what is sin? Answer. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. John says in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Notice, for sin is the transgression of the law. It doesn't matter how serious or how light we might interpret the sin to be, it is a transgression of God's law. It is sin. Question 152 of the larger catechism asks, What does every sin deserve at the hands of God? The answer, Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against His righteous law deserves His wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated by, but by the blood of Christ. In support of this, listen to what James says in James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He's guilty of breaking all of God's law. And then question 150. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? Now notice carefully the distinction that is made here. All sins deserve the wrath and curse of God, but are all sins equally heinous in the sight of God? Answer, all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. In John 19.11, listen to what Jesus says to Pilate. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given to thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. The one who delivered me to thee, Pilate, has the greater sin has aggravated his sin. It is a more heinous sin. That most likely refers to the chief priest who should have known, who was instructed in the Word of God because of the light that had been given him. He should have known who this was, the Son of God. He has a greater sin than this heathen magistrate. Furthermore, in Ezekiel 8.6, after God mentions various abominations that that Israel was guilty of. He keeps using this phrase, Thou shalt see greater 
abominations. Not more abominations, but greater in the sense of more heinous abominations that Israel has committed. And thus, dear ones, we we see from this very, very brief survey, we could spend a lot of time on the subject, but from this very brief survey, we see that all unrighteousness is sin, as John declares in chapter 5, verse 17. That is, any lack of conformity to the absolutely perfect righteousness of God is sin. And anyone, anyone's sin, whether we conceive of it to be small or great, deserves the eternal wrath of God. One of those sins deserves the wrath of God. It deserves eternal death. However, Christ died in order to redeem His people from every sin, both great and small. And it is only through embracing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith that we can be freely pardoned and forgiven of all of our sin. You see, although it is true that every sin without distinction by its very nature, deserves the eternal wrath of God. Nevertheless, listen closely, we can make our sin even more reprehensible before God by certain aggravations of that sin. For example, if you want to read in your catechism, the larger catechism, I believe it's question 151, I won't read that whole section. It's quite a large section, but you can follow up there. But I will summarize a few ways in which we can make our sins even more reprehensible before God. Sins committed directly against the light that God has given us are more reprehensible than those committed in ignorance. Sins committed against family members are more reprehensible than those committed against those outside of your family because you are bound in a unique way to the members of your family. Sins committed directly against God are more reprehensible than those committed against man. And on and on, we could make those kinds of distinctions. All sin deserves the wrath of God but we aggravate the heinousness of the sin by performing other sins upon it or in certain circumstances or situations performing those sins. The text speaks of a sin, dear ones, which is not unto death. That does not mean, therefore, that it is an unimportant or little sin as the Roman Catholics define a venial sin. That's not the point. Just because it does does not lead to death, according to the text, does not mean it's a small, insignificant, or unimportant sin. It is a sin that indeed, as all other sins, deserves eternal death. But dear ones, it is a sin that may be forgiven by the unfathomable grace of God. 
It is a pardonable sin. For the apostle says in Romans 5.20, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The Apostle Paul looked upon himself, the seriousness of the sins that he had committed, and said, I'm the chief of sinners, but I have been forgiven. I have been pardoned. The Lord redeemed me. And he set himself up that way so as to give you and me encouragement and comfort that we might draw on that same mercy and grace every single day that we live. That as many times as we draw from that fountain, that reservoir of grace and mercy, it does not make it the least bit empty. It continues to overflow towards His people. And that is why we are to pray for a brother or a sister who sins not unto death. Because there is a grace and pardon and mercy available. Well, what sins might this include? Sins that are not unto death. Well, they would certainly include sins against God, like even acts of false worship, unbelief, embracing error, blasphemy, covenant-breaking with God, profaning the Sabbath, neglecting secret or family worship, mere outward formalism in worship, and on and on. Other sins that... A sin that does not lead to death would include our sins against our fellow man because they may be forgiven by the grace of God. And they include things like disrespect for parents, murder, persecution of the righteous, anger, lust, immorality, theft, bitterness, malice, lying, evil speaking, or discontentment are all sins which the Lord God forgives. All sins which we have committed, dear ones, against God or man in thought, word, or deed may be forgiven except one. All sins which deserve the eternal wrath of God may Uh, may be separated from us as far as is the east from the west, except one. For though every sin deserves eternal death, not every sin absolutely secures eternal death without remedy, except one. Thus, dear ones, there is no sin that your brother could commit against you or against the Lord that you shouldn't be taking in all humility and love before the throne of God. We cannot 
We cannot earnestly kneel in prayer weeping for the sin that a brother has committed against us and quickly stand in bitterness or malice or envy to speak evil of him. Especially when we remember the amazing grace that God has shown toward each of us. When we consider how much God has forgiven us and how he has drawn us unto himself and bound us to himself through those cords of love, we cannot help but take the sins of our brethren to the Lord, weeping for them. A final point, the final question then this Lord's Day, what then is the sin unto death? A most sober topic, a most serious subject. What is the sin unto death? For our text says there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. A sin for which you should not pray. There are three possibilities or options that I would eliminate as being the sin unto death in this passage. First of all, it is not a sin that merely leads to physical death. For those in the Scripture did indeed pray for and repent of sins that might lead to or did lead to physical death. For example... In Ezekiel 33, verses 14 and 15, God says, Again, when I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die. If he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Certainly that has a spiritual implication, but I believe that it dealt with a physical judgment that was about to fall upon the land as well. If he prays, if he repents, God will not pour out his wrath and anger upon him. He shall live and not die, even though God said, you shall surely die. And so here we find prayer affecting life, even though death had been mentioned. But in 1 John chapter 5, this sin which leads to death is not to be prayed for. I submit to you it cannot be mere physical death that's in view. Secondly, neither does John here refer to a sin deserving capital punishment. Similar kind of categories, the first one. We're not, as if John were to say, those who, who commit a sin that is worthy of capital punishment, whether murder or any other sin, that you're not to pray for them. For certainly one who is guilty of such a sin, a sin which would require in a lawful government, a lawful nation, capital punishment, such a sin may be prayed for and may be repented of either by oneself or by others. That doesn't mean that the punishment should be absolved, but it does mean that the person can be forgiven of the sin, the crime that he has committed. 
You remember David prayed and repented of his murder and adultery and was forgiven. Simply read Psalm 51, which spells out the joy of forgiveness. And this psalm specifically addresses the sin associated with his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Thirdly, I submit that this sin spoken of in 1 John chapter 5 is not merely a rejection of the gospel. It is not merely unbelief. For we may pray for all those who reject the truth. We may even pray for those who persecute us for proclaiming the gospel to them. And we are actually commanded to pray for them. It's not simply an option, but we are to pray for them. Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Well, what is the sin unto death? I submit to you, dear ones, that it is the same sin of which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke in Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32, when he said, Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Although I will not be able to address this subject at any length today, let me note, by way of summary, few characteristics about this unpardonable sin for which we are not to pray. First, it is a kind of blasphemy different than a mere act. You notice the Lord makes a distinction. One can blaspheme the Son of Man but one and be forgiven, but one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven in this life nor in the life to come. This blasphemy, this sin unto death, is not a sin committed, I submit to you, by a profane and vile heathen. It is not one that is committed by one, uh, by, uh, by one who has nothing to do with the church of Jesus Christ. who is in a a foreign or a false religion. I submit to you that the sin unto death and the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost is a total apostasy, a complete falling away from the gospel of Jesus Christ so that one who had formally professed 
to love the gospel of Christ and had received so much light from his knowledge of the word now willfully turns his back upon Christ and the gospel and declares that he hates the Lord and completely renounces the gospel of Christ. He turns his back so completely and not by one mere act but by a decided lifestyle. By his life he determines that he will have nothing to do with Christ though he has been given so much light and understanding. Not that he was converted ever but he professed to be a Christian. And now having learned so much he turns his back completely upon the Lord his God and lives in open professed rebellion and hatred for the gospel of Christ. He sins against the Holy Spirit in such a case by solemnly declaring Christ and the gospel to be lies and even works of the devil. This is what we find again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, for example, verses 26 and verses 29. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains a sacrifice for sins. Verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Sanctified in the sense that one is set apart to hear the gospel set apart because he's a professed member of Christ's church to hear the Word of God preached every Lord's Day. Professes to be a member. Professes uh, to live according to God's Word. To love the Lord. And then, he completely renounces, turns his back upon, hates and despises everything that Christ and the gospel stands for. Such a one has been given over to the unpardonable sin. Such persons guilty of this sin no longer know even the conviction of the Holy Spirit at all. They are beyond hope in this life. They are dead while they live. We must, dear ones, be so careful not to throw this sin carelessly around at people without there being such overwhelming testimony even from the church of Christ. We must be ever so careful to not simply throw that particular sin around. John does not present this sin, dear ones, at this point in order that true believers might be driven from the assurance of their salvation. 
But in order to warn all professing believers that there is such a sin and that those who completely apostatize from Christ and the gospel may fall into such a sin. You see, that was, that was the danger in the situation to which John was writing. That there were those who had followed Christ, professed Christ, but those who had followed now the ways of the Gnostics in renouncing the true Savior, despising, hating the orthodox view of who Jesus Christ is and the gospel of grace. There were those who were being led that direction and so the apostle raises this particular issue for them to seriously consider as does Paul in the book of Hebrews. Now, let me clarify before I close. This is certainly not true of any Christian. Whether that Christian is weak or strong, a Christian cannot commit the sin unto death. For he has been justified and declared righteous eternally by the righteousness of Christ or on the basis of Christ's righteousness. This cannot be true of any Christian, whether he is more or less pure in doctrine or worship. This is true of one who is a complete and total apostate. For Jesus Christ is promised in John chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That is, all that God has chosen to save and He has given to me to save, they will come to me and believe in me. And notice what He says. Jesus says, And him that cometh to me, that is, the one who does believe in me, and take me to be his Savior, his only hope of eternal salvation, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. You remember what the will of him that sent me was, as stated by Christ, that of all that the Lord had given him, that he would not lose even one. In closing, dear ones, it is only for those guilty of this sin, the sin unto death, that we are not to pray. Thus, when we fail, listen closely, when we fail to pray for fellow brethren who have sinned against us, or have sinned against others, or who have even sinned against Christ in some way, whether we realize it or not, we are unwittingly by our practice placing those brethren who are erring and have sinned in the same camp as those who have sinned the sin unto death because we refuse to pray for them or we don't remember to pray for them in their hour of need they need our prayers but where are our prayers where is our love at that point we begin to treat them as if they had committed the sin unto death 
God, help us, dear ones, to love the brethren, yea, even erring brethren, enough to pray for them. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, 136, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Is that what attitude, is that the same attitude that we have for those who err and sin, who are brethren? Rivers of water flow from our eyes. Stand with me in prayer, please. Our gracious God, we pray that Thou would cause us, Thy people, this day to realize the great privilege we have in having brethren. That we are not one individual, but we have a family. And even a family that far exceeds those in this congregation. And, O oh, Father, we pray that Thou would grant to us such love for the brethren and even such love for erring and sinning brethren that rivers of water would flow from our eyes because they keep not Thy law and Thy commandments. Let us, Father, be driven away from the tendency, the natural tendency, to speak evil of others, let us be driven, Father, rather into our secret closet to uphold and to pray for our brethren. And when there is need to confront them with their sin, let us as well go with that attitude of love and prayer that there might be seen in our own hearts a love for the brethren. Grant it, we do ask and we do plead with thee. For Christ's sake. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, 
or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.